Some of you will be familiar with the name uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. He was a uh, 20th century French philosopher. He also was a playwright, among other things. And one of his plays was entitled No Exit. And in that play, he depicts uh, what he thinks hell would be like. And he portrays hell as three people consigned to a room. Uh, the room itself doesn't pose any direct threat, but these individuals remain in this room forever without sleep, and their eyes are always open. And as the play goes on, the people each pretend to be uh, much different than they really were in life. So, for example, uh, the man who's in the room, there's one man and, and two women. The man who's in the room, uh, he pretends that he was a war hero, uh, even though in real life he was actually killed in a train wreck while he was abandoning his comrades in battle. And then, uh, and then the other two in the room, they're ladies, and they pretend like they've led this upstanding moral life, when in, in reality it was actually quite the opposite. But, but as time goes by, while the three people are always seeing, uh, there's this attempt to paint a beautiful picture of themselves and their lives, but as time goes by, eventually everything is revealed. Um, they, they're seen for who they really are, which all drives towards this, this dread-filled moral of Sartre's play where, where the, the final line will read something like, you are your life and nothing else. You are your life and nothing else. And even in the saying of that line, it strikes a chord of bleakness with us. You are your life and nothing else. As we reflect on the hardships of life, as we reflect on the disappointments of life, as we reflect on the, the suffering and pressures of life, uh, we certainly don't like how that line sounds, you are your life and nothing else. Um, and while that line isn't particularly appealing to us, it certainly wouldn't have been appealing to the first hearers of, of Peter's letter here either. And that's because Peter's writing to people whose life is largely marked by deep and continued hardship. Uh, just a little ways down in verse 6 of chapter 1, Peter references the, the grief and various trials that these Christians have been experiencing. In chapter 2, he makes a note of the fact that they've experienced unjust suffering. It's punctuated in chapter 3 where Peter references their suffering for doing good. Chapter 4, he talks about how they're facing fiery trials. And by the time we get to the last chapter, chapter 5, Peter speaks about the persecution they've endured. So the lives of these Christian believers that Peter is writing to here aren't lives marked by ease. They're not lives marked by, by peace or a necessary felt fulfillment or joy or rest or any of those kinds of things. But instead, their lives are marked by, by future uncertainty and the deep experience of personal loss. Even when Peter begins his letter, he addresses these believers as exiles dispersed abroad. Uh, we, we know in the first century when Peter wrote this letter that there were uh, increasing cases of hostility towards Christians. Eventually, it would culminate in the official sanction of persecution under the uh, Roman Emperor Nero, and then again under Domitian, and then more, uh, more significantly under Trajan as well. Uh, persecution against Christianity was building during this time, and as a result, the lives of these believers were, were being affected in significant ways. They were suffering. Now, the lives that they were living were, were, were filled with uncertainty, and not just that, but they experienced deep personal loss. And if Sartre's line was true, you know, you are your life and nothing else, then these believers would have had every reason to despair. Uh, but Peter writes to them, and instead of a line of despair, he speaks to them of the hope uh, that's theirs. He speaks to them of the hope, ultimately, that we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday. So instead of saying something like, you are your life and nothing else, instead, Peter says that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because of His life, 
There's a true and certain hope that actually transcends any kind of future uncertainty or any kind of personal loss that we may uh, presently experience. And just like Peter's first audience needed that word of hope, that we know ourselves to need that word of hope again this morning, uh, we know that while our circumstances are obviously different than the, than the immediate context of 1 Peter, uh, we do know that even just given the last couple years and all that's accompanied, uh, accompanied them, uh, no doubt uh, future uncertainty and experiences of personal loss uh, mark our lives significantly. And there was an article published by the World Health Organization in February, and they reported that, uh, that there's been a 25% increase in depression and anxiety on a global scale since the pandemic began. And in that article, they went on to say this. They went on to say, loneliness, suffering and death for loved ones, grief after bereavement, and financial worries have all been cited as stressors leading to this significant increase. And no doubt that's all true. We, we presently live in a time where our lives, in many ways, have increased in bleakness. Uh, we now have a measure of relief that we're so thankful for, but we know the weightiness of what it means to endure uh, seasons of difficulty. And what Peter does for us in these verses is he helps us to see that rather than bleakness, rather than a kind of hopelessness uh, being the final word in our lives, rather than you are your life and nothing else being what defines reality for us, instead, Peter's telling us that there's a much greater hope, and it's a hope that's centered on new life. It's a hope that's centered on a new life that ultimately comes through the fact that Jesus Christ didn't stay dead, but He rose from the grave. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to take some time to walk through just these two verses from Peter, and we'll see how he brings us this hope that transcends even, even the bleakness that might otherwise weigh us down. So if you're following along in your Bible, uh, we're going to begin in verse 3. And as we begin in verse 3, we see that Peter starts this off with, with praise. He starts with praise. He starts by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to note there that the word Peter uses, which is translated as blessed in our English Bibles, or maybe it's translated as, as praise be uh, to the God and Father, depending on the translation you're reading from. But it's interesting to note that when Peter wrote this in Greek, he used the word uh, from which we get our English word eulogy. Now, when you think of the word eulogy, we immediately recognize that term from, from funerals where a person will get up, maybe a, a family member or a close friend of the deceased, and they'll, they'll get up to eulogize the person. It's a word that means to speak, speak a, a good word about somebody else. And, and that's what Peter starts with here. Peter begins by saying, in effect, I speak a good word about God. He begins with a word of praise. Um, but, but if we put ourselves in the seats of the first hearers, um, it, it, might be, it might catch us a little bit off guard that Peter does begin this way. It's not a huge surprise, generally speaking, that Peter would begin with praise. But this way of beginning, especially if we were the first hearers of this letter, this way of starting might strike us as a bit abrupt or maybe even insensitive. Uh, because remember, Peter is writing to sufferers. Again, there's not one chapter in, in Peter's letter here where he doesn't reference the hardship these people are enduring in one way or another. These are people full of, of future uncertainty. They're dealing with personal loss, those things we talked about earlier. He's speaking to Christian sufferers. And while a word of praise is always warranted, it might have come off kind of like uh, the coworker who's always just a little bit too happy on Monday morning. You know, they're just a little too chipper. They, they talk a little too much. They talk a little too loud. 
Um, the word of praise might come off this way because there, there very well could have been some people hearing this letter read who weren't so much oriented toward the immediate praise of God at the moment, uh, but instead there certainly could have been those who were ex- experiencing some significant confusion about God. What, why would the Lord let these hardships continue to persist in our lives? Or maybe some in the, in, the, in the assembly here were struggling with a real sense of distance from God. Some may have felt like God was very far off as they faced these different and various pressures. Where is God in all that's going on in our life right now? Or maybe there were even some out in the, in the immediate context of Peter's uh, hearing who were struggling with anger towards God. How could he let us face this stuff? How, how could God allow us to go through some of these painful hardships that we keep enduring? We hear the way Peter begins by eulogizing here, and some listening might have wondered if, if maybe Peter could tone it down a notch. We, we don't want praise so much at the moment, Peter. We, we've got questions. We're, we're not actually starting from a position of saying, praise God. We're starting from a position of saying, why, God, are these kinds of things happening? Our lar- life is marked by significant distress. And, and maybe you can identify with that yourself this morning. More than an orientation toward praise as you consider God Almighty. Maybe you're more acutely in the camp of concern, maybe confusion, maybe distress. Life life is future uncertainty and personal loss. And you may find yourself not so much praising God as wondering where in the world is God in all of this. How could Peter start with praise? But as we go on, we do see that the reason Peter starts with praise is not because he's he's just overly happy and maybe a mourning person. The reason Peter starts with praise is because that while these Christian lives may be marked by hardship, Peter starts here because he knows truth that transcends the life of hardship that they're facing. He knows truth that's contrary. Ultimately, it's contrary to the the moral of Sartre's play. He knows truth that's way more than you are your life and nothing else. Peter knows that there's something bigger, there's something beyond, there's something God has done which transcends the immediate circumstances these people are facing and which ultimately draws us out in worship. And we see this as we keep moving through verse 3 where Peter sources his praise in the next statement when he says, Praise be or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, why are you saying that, Peter? It doesn't seem like a very timely or sensitive thing to say, except that according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, Peter's eulogy of God, Peter's words of praise, aren't sourced as aren't sourced in life as we know it at the moment, but instead Peter's praise is sourced in this new life that exists because Jesus rose again from the dead. Now, now it repays us to take just a moment and, and think this out. Obviously, Peter, on the one hand, is using language that's familiar to us, but at the same time, this, this statement might strike us as being a bit esoteric because he speaks here about being born again, being born again. God has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection. Um, the, the, the birth concept, being born into something, is familiar enough to us. Uh, we know our lives, our, our biological, at least to a, to a large degree, does have a defining factor in our lives. Our, our biological parents define us. Now, my kids sometimes say I do something that reminds them just like uh, j- just of, of grandpa and the way he acts. We all have those kinds of, of, uh, of, of commonalities. 
The ethnic heritage we're born into has an impact upon us. We're born as citizens of a country. That defines some of who we are. We're born into all kinds of things. We're born into economic circumstances, which has an impact on our lives. We know what it is to be born into a, a, a set of circumstances that ultimately has a huge impact on our life. And what Peter says here is that by the mercies of God, so, so not because of anything I've done, not because of the merits of Jared, but by the mercies of God, according to the unmerited, undeserved kindness of God, we have been born into something. We have been born into this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, so, so born we get, but what are we to make of this born again kind of language here that, that Peter is employing? Born again through, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, whatever else is going on, we immediately have to see how Peter's statement does put us right at the center of Easter Sunday celebration, doesn't it? On this Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, we're obviously celebrating, Peter's obviously referencing uh, Jesus who was crucified. He gave himself up to death on a Roman cross. We talked about that at length Friday night. Jesus died, but death wasn't the final word for Jesus because on the first day of the week, like we read in the passage we started the service with this morning, on the first day of the week, the ladies go to the tomb and there the stone is rolled away and two angels are there, terrifying in appearance as angels always are. They're there and they say to the woman, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. So, so right at the center of our worship this morning, right at the center of Peter's statement here is the fact that Jesus, once crucified on the cross, uh, is now the one who has paid the price for the sins of all who tr will trust in him. And he has gone all the way to, the de to death only uh, to pass through death, having rescued us from sin's penalty. Death, of course, can't hold him as the perfectly innocent one. So he is now risen again to newness of life. Jesus pays this freedom price. So, so guilt and, and innocence now exchange places in our lives. We're now freed before God. The penalty of sin is gone. Jesus rose again, vindicated indicating the work that he's done. And then here's the thing. Here's what Peter's getting at. Jesus' resurrection victory over death was not an isolated, solitary, personal victory. Jesus' victory over death was more than that in, in that it wasn't a victory that he alone enjoyed, but his victory over death actually was corporate in its application. So, so through the death and resurrection of Christ, all who trust in Him are freed from this, this, this power of, of death, the ultimate power of death itself. Which is why Peter says, uh, when, when, when he goes on here about being born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's like how Paul says to the Ephesians that, that we were spiritually dead in our sin, but what did God do? Well, God made us alive together with Christ. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is something we celebrate, certainly because of the vindicated glories it represents for Christ. He was truly innocent. He defeated the grave. But we don't just celebrate the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus rose. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus because in His resurrection, all who believe in Him will also rise. Death is not the final word for us. So, so it's no surprise Peter here can talk about this new birth then that comes through Jesus' resurrection. Because in Jesus' new life, we're granted new life. Which means that our, that our first birth, whenever that was, our first birth is not the final birth that defines us. You know, you are your life and nothing else. In, in, in Christ, uh, that is ultimately a non-truth. In Christ, I am not ultimately defined by my past life or whatever else may have happened to me. In Christ, I've been reborn. I'm reborn into this life-giving gift of resurrection life. 
And then Peter explains here that this is a new birth into something. Just like we're born into circumstances, we're born into a certain family. Peter says this is actually a new birth through the resurrection into a living hope. A living hope. Now, a living hope is the opposite of what? A dead hope. A living hope is the opposite of vain hope. It's the opposite of a hope that eventually uh, leaves us unfulfilled and despairing. You see, when we think about the word hope, that's a concept itself that is regularly placed in the category of desired possibility, isn't it? That's what a hope is. To say hope is to indicate that we'd really like to have a certain thing take place, but we know, you know it might not happen. It's a hope that's based on a longing, but it it's, it's, can be void of real certainty. We've all, many of us, I'm sure, in our homes this week heard, I hope it will snow again so we can miss school. Huh? It's a desired possibility, but obviously it's not a certainty. That's how we use the word hope. In the New Testament, the word hope is totally different from that. It's not a term that refers to a desired possibility, but it's a a term that refers to an absolute certainty, which we'll see more as the text goes on here. But but it's this living hope that's granted to us in the resurrection of Christ. So as he says here, our God and Father in His mercy applies the resurrection life of Jesus to us in a way that secures a hope that is completely unchained to the despairing hopes offered around us. Which would have been an extremely encouraging word uh, for the first hearers of Peter's letter. And it's an extraordinary word of encouragement for us as well this morning because we have all, we have all had plenty of experiences with dead hope. We've all had plenty of experiences with vain hope. We know about that hollowness. Don't we? At a large level, we, we hope in politicians who ultimately seem to leave us disappointed. We hope in certain personal relationships that can so often leave us hurt and scarred and these kinds of things. We, we take out a loan hoping that what? Interest rates won't go up. What do they do? Right? We hope gas prices will go down. We live with vain hopes all the time. But through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're born again. Our life's renewed. We're refreshed in our birth association, not with things that are ultimately hollow and empty and vain, and disappoint eventually, but we're actually renewed in things that correspond to the assurances of eternity, which is why Peter doesn't start this sentence with anything less than praise. That's why he begins by saying, bless the Lord. And it's also why Peter goes where he goes next, and then he says that this hope we've, born, we've been born into, this hope, we need to have it explained to us. We, don't, we need to understand what you're talking about, Peter. And what he helps us with now in verse 4 is that this hope we're born into through Jesus Christ is described in the very tangible terms of an inheritance. We need to know what he's talking about. Peter, you can't leave us in this realm of philosophy. Yes, hope secured is nice, and that sounds good, and maybe we could write a book or two about that and spend some time in the esoteric realm thinking about these things, but we need this put in working clothes for us. What do you mean by the fact we've been born into this living hope? And so if you look at this verse, in verse 4, we read how this hope that's ours through Jesus' defeat of death, this is defined as an inheritance as well, Peter says. And on one level, we know about being born into inheritances, or maybe we hope, we, were, we wish we were born into inheritances, right? Inheritances come from the stabilized wealth of people who've gone on before us and pass on their material possessions to us. That's one way to think about inheritances. But in the scriptures, this inheritance concept takes on a very big meaning. Because instead of inheritance being merely something we gain from a person who's, who's had a whole bunch of stuff and then died and liked us, so they left us some of it. Instead of that, in the Scriptures, inheritance is something much bigger. 
It actually goes back to the picture we have in the Old Testament of the promised land. You remember the land that God promised to Abraham. And then we read in in places like Exodus how it was going to be a land that was good and spacious, flowing with milk and honey and those kinds of things. It was the land that God brought the people of Israel into following the Exodus event and the desert wanderings and those things. God spoke of that land, land of Canaan, as His people's inheritance. It was described as this land of rest. And we know, as we read the prophets, and then as we listen to what Jesus teaches in His earthly ministry, and then as we read uh, the book of Hebrews, for example, we know that the Old Testament inheritance of a land of rest was ultimately pointing to something bigger, something much better. Ultimately, the inheritance that comes to us through Jesus Christ isn't the mere inheritance of a chunk of land, it is the inheritance of a kind of eternal promised land. It points forward to that eternal heavenly reality of a new creation, which is why Peter ends this section by speaking of our inheritance being secured where? It's secured in heaven for us. It's a heavenly heavenly, uh, security that we have in this. It's that heavenly reality we look forward to where where sin is no more, where injustice is no more, uh, where, where the sorrows we face are gone, the tears are wiped away, and we're forever in the presence of God with His people. That's, that's the full expression of inheritance in the Scriptures. And so, and so that's what Peter is speaking to these, uh, to these believers about. This is the inheritance hope that we're born into through Jesus rising again. He's risen to new life, and in His rising to new life, we will one day rise to a new life in a new creation, in that, in that heavenly existence. And, and, here, and here's the thing about that. It's not just a heavenly inheritance that we have here as Peter describes it. But it's a heavenly inheritance, Peter says, that's entirely secure for those who trust in Jesus. The first hearers of this this letter, they would have known too well the threat of having their earthly possessions taken from them. They, They even feel the reality of being wanderers and being displaced. They're like exiles, Peter said from the beginning. Uh, but, but being reborn into the resurrection promise of life through Jesus, that changes everything. Because this new life is one that looks forward to this guaranteed reality. And then Peter actually describes this guarantee in three ways in verse 4, if you, if you look there. First of all, he says, this inheritance is imperishable. It's death-proof, Peter says. So, so in other words, the new life that Jesus has procured for us through His own resurrection from the dead, that new life which will culminate in the reality of, of, of heavenly rest, free from the pain and sorrow and all the harms, that new life can't be destroyed by decay. It's death-proof. And it's not just death-proof, but it's also sin-proof. It's an undefiled inheritance. That is to say that that what Christ has secured for those who will trust in Him is not something that I can even destroy by my own stumbling and falling into sin against God. And it's not something that anyone else can destroy by their sinning against me or sinning against God. It's secured, after all, by Jesus' own purity and perfection. We know that. And sin can't remove it from me. So our inheritance in Christ is completely free from the destruction of moral impurity. It's an undefiled inheritance. So this inheritance is death-proof, it's sin-proof, and then it's also time-proof. You see that? It's an unfading inheritance, Peter tells us. I'll give you my favorite uh, riddle from The Hobbit. If you've read the book, you know the answer, uh, but, it, but it's so good, I'm going to share it anyway. Here's, here's the riddle. You, you know it, I'm sure. But This thing, all things devours. Do you remember this one? Gollum's last riddle of five, I think. 
This thing all things devours, birds, beasts, trees, flowers, gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds, grinds hard stones to meal, slays king, ruins towns, and brings high mountain down. What am I? That's the riddle. Of course, the answer, if you know the Hobbit, is, is time. Time is the answer to that riddle. Uh, there's a sense in which time brings all things that are to an end. It brings all things down. And from, from the rust on my neighbor's old pickup truck uh, to, to the lives of those in positions of power, time brings everything down, except that in time, our secured heavenly home will not be destroyed. In fact, quite the opposite. This inheritance doesn't fade, but as time as we know it ends, we will only be ushered into this everlasting rest. So, so you can see how Peter's making his point here. He's addressing an audience that's suffering, but he's addressing them from this perspective of transcendence. Do you see this life that is yours now through the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because he lives. Look at how you now live. Look at this promise of hope that's there for you. He's addressing an audience that's suffering in this life. Their immediate future is extremely uncertain. In this life, they face personal loss, no doubt, and more loss to come. And Peter starts by praising God for his mercy, which might at first seem like, like too happy a way to start talking to suffering people until we hear what Peter has to tell them. He praises God for His mercy because Jesus' resurrection from the dead is not solitary, but instead it is applied corporately to us as we experience new birth. And that new birth brings us into a life completely opposite. Doom and decay being the final word in all of this, but instead life and life eternal ultimately awaits us on the other side. That this is the new life that brings us into a, into a secured hope. So it's a life that's death-proof. What do we know in our lives that's death-proof? Nothing is death-proof. Right? We wish things were death-proof. Nothing is death-proof. It's a life that's sin-proof. What haven't I somehow affected negatively because of the actions of my sinful heart? Nothing in my life seems to be sin-proof. This inheritance is sin-proof. And it's a life that's time-proof. Time destroys all things, but time will not destroy this. Instead, time will be what we enjoy eternally because of what's been purchased here by Jesus. So for people like Peter's first audience, for people like us who knew all too well the reality of an uncertain future, the pains of personal loss, all these things, Resurrection Sunday ultimately brings us hope that counters all of these discouragements completely because instead of an uncertain future, what do we have? We have a completely secure future. And instead of personal loss, what do we have? We have the secured eternal inheritance through Jesus, all because in God's mercy, He's applied Jesus' life to our life. So just listen to, listen to how uh, the prophet Isaiah speaks about this inheritance in ultimate terms. It's, it's, it's poetic. It's the Lord speaking through Isaiah. Listen, listen to, uh, to how, these things, how these things go. The Lord says, For I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Can you imagine the burden of re the relief of the burden that that, that, that will be in a, in a new creation? Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, the Lord says. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and his people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. In her, a nursing infant will no longer live only a few days, or an old man not live out his days. Indeed, the one who dies at a hundred years old will be mourned as a young man, and the one who misses a hundred years old will be considered cursed. 
People will build houses and live in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and others live in them. They will not plant and others eat. For my people live, for, for, my, for my people's lives will be like the lifetime of a tree. My chosen ones with, will fully enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor without success or bear children destined for disaster. For they will be people blessed by the Lord along with their descendants. It's an amazing truth. And then he finishes out the wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like cattle, but the serpent's food will be dust. They will not do what is evil or destroy on my entire holy mountain, says the Lord. You think of this wonderful description of life that Isaiah gives to us there as we look forward to what's coming in the heavenly reality of a new creation. This is not a life uh, that, that deals with sorrow. This is not a life enshrined by loss. This is not a life where death always looms, but instead everything is different. New life is there. New life abounds. And it's a new life purchased by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he lives, we will live. I wonder this morning as we consider these things, if you, if you, if you feel your sense of, of need uh, for, for renewal, for this kind of new life that, Jesus, uh, that Peter speaks about here. It's a need that can, that can be so palpable, we feel it. We can know the despair uh, of Jean-Paul Sartre all too well. You are your life and nothing else. We can feel that ourselves on a given Monday morning. But the response to that statement on Resurrection Sunday is ultimately it is a non-truth. Because as we see Jesus... We're not merely our lives and nothing else. Instead, we're granted his life and everything else with it. His ultimate defeat of death will be our ultimate defeat of death as we turn to him and say, in you, Jesus, I find the forgiveness that I need. Now grant me, please, the life that you promise. Which ultimately leaves us praising just like it started Peter praising. And so we're going to sing this in just a moment. But the song goes, how great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I couldn't climb. I could never make myself okay before the living God. In desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. And what happened? Well then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. Feel your soul to have shadows this morning? The loving kindness of God tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Let's pray together. So, Father, we pray that we would be renewed in this this morning, that the glories of what you've accomplished through Christ would be life for us, that as difficult as things may be, as the pressures may abound and surround us, may we have in our minds the fact that through Jesus we are ultimately victorious, not because of anything that we have ultimately done, but because by your mercies you've applied his victory to us, and we thank you for that, we praise you for that. And we pray that we would be encouraged by that truth this morning. We ask this in the name of the risen Lord Jesus. Amen.